0: Welcome to Pouring Over Pages, a podcast of words and line. I'm Alexa. And I'm Maritza. Let's get lit on literature. Woo! Yay! We're back. We're
1: back. Da-na-na. We're back. And we are excited, really They're excited airy. to talk about this. We've been wanting to do an episode like this. And we've been, I think, over the past few months really reflecting on what kind of issues and what kind of topics we want to discuss on the podcast. And we want to be reactionary. Mm -hmm. We want to have conversations about what's going on now. So this we've already sort of nicknamed it the Iran episode, because we want to talk about what's happening in Iran. We want to talk about the protests that began in September. We want to do a quick little history lesson, you know, to those who might not know about the Islamic revolution in 1978 and 79, We want to talk about Masa Amini. We want to talk about hijab. We want to talk about all the words that you've probably been hearing Mm -hmm. and might not know what they mean or might not know how we got here. Exactly.
0: And it's totally okay to be intimidated by the topic. It's totally okay to not really understand what's going on. We live in a very individualistic Western society, but um, you just listening to this podcast is is helping forward um, the message and the issues at hand and educating all of us. So I'm glad that you're listening.
1: <laughs> exactly. And, and also this, th- the fact that we pick and choose our news Mm -hmm. right through our feeds, through who we follow. So we wanted, you know, to all the people who are so incredibly supportive of our podcast, we wanted to have this conversation because we know that this is a tough subject and I feel comfortable talking about it only because I I have a degree in history. Like yeah. if if I if I didn't, I feel like I would be starting from scratch because it's not something that's really taught to you in school. You know, this is exactly. something that I had to learn when I was in university, and even then, I had to do so much independent research in preparation for this episode. So yeah, just, just not to belabor the point, but Alexis is absolutely right. You know, some people are not going to have much of a background on this, but that's the whole point. That's why mm-hmm. we're here.
0: Yeah, we're here to have the conversations and open up your minds and perspectives and just giving you a little nugget of knowledge so so you could understand what's going on.
1: Yeah, so that way when you are hanging out with your family and, you know, people are arguing, you can actually throw some facts. Yes, we love facts here. I love facts. <laughs> this is a fact-based podcast. So in order to have this conversation, in order to discuss these really difficult but incredibly important topics, we're going to be discussing a really wonderful book yes. titled The Enlightenment of the Green Gage Tree by Shukhufei Azar, and she is an Iranian-Australian author. This book was shortlisted for the 2020 International Booker Prize. Uh, it was translated uh, into English, so we read the translation, and it's it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a stunning book. It's a really tough read but i think it's worth your dedication i think it's worth your time i think it's worth your effort because it's incredibly insightful it's incredibly loving mm-hmm. even though the subject matter is difficult and the storyline is is i think really hard to get through but i think it's written with a lot of love i think a love for the iranian people a love for for persian culture yeah. and you really see that you know seeping through and alexa paired it with like the most perfect Wine ever. And I'm just excited to hear you talk about the wine, but then also talk about like wine in Iran. Like I'm just already yeah, like excited for a that lot. part.
0: there's a lot going on there. No, we're having um a delicious wine from Oregon. It is sara three degrees Pinot noir twenty eighteen. It's made by an Iranian family who immigrated to the United States years and years ago. So um, it's a treat and I'm glad I was able to find something like this to pair with the book.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it's, and it's interesting too, because like, for example, I I actually have a friend, I, I went to college with him. His name is Sina and he's also from Oregon, but of Iranian descent. So it's interesting. Um, I think the migration patterns out. are interesting. Yeah, exactly. Like, How do you end up in Oregon of all places? Well, I'd love how, to know. Even how
0: you said she's um, Iranian-Australian. Yeah. I was like, some of my Lebanese family migrated to um, Australia too.
1: Yeah, it's kind of weird. We should look that up. It's we probably up. related to some sort of like you know, like a turning point in history. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It's always yeah. a political yes, thing. Yes, for because, sure. As we've said many times before, the political is personal. Yes. Yeah, so. So okay. Hmm. So yeah, that's something to look into for sure. But it's it's interesting to to think about this this family you know living in Oregon and creating something really out of nothing. I, mm-hmm. I know you'll dive into that, but it's it's. It's an exciting wine, yeah, I think, to discuss. Sure. But I mean, I, let's just start with the obvious question. I mean, let's dive into your the over? summary, I guess. Yeah, you're right. And then, yeah, the this is a book that you have to be patient. If magical, but we also acknowledge that it's necessary, totally
0: necessary for
1: this book. So you you have to kind of bear with it. I think. Yeah. But this is a really beautiful story of a young girl who is actually a ghost. And she's the narrator of the entire book. And she's talking through the struggle of her family uh, during not only the revolution, but then the mass executions that happened in 1988. Uh, Her brother was killed during the mass executions of 88. Uh, Their whole family left to a small town called Razan uh, after the revolution. So it's focused on this one family and how they handled the Islamic revolution and how they were able to survive until they weren't, yeah. right, um, after the revolution. But each individual character, I think, is so complex and so interesting because even though Bahar is the narrator, you do get to see into the lives of each of the family members and you get to know them very well and yeah. you get to feel their struggle, their, when in, when they're not confident, when they are confident, when they feel joy, when they feel fear. And I think the author does a really good job of providing all those sorts of vignettes mm-hmm. throughout the book.
0: No, I agree. You get to learn each character so intimately through their their lens, their perspective, and you're literally in their mind. So it's not, even though um the one daughter is narrating it, you feel like you get a, a perfect picture of each character. And I so I liked the book. Don't get me wrong. Like totally read it. It's beautifully written. You could it just has a soul to it, I feel this book, and you you really dive in everything is so like intricately detailed and, and so rich And each like anecdote, each character, each story feels so fully fleshed out that you're like, okay, this is, you're getting more than enough detail for everything. And it feels almost like different stories in one, but there are, you know, mermaids and, and djinns and, and other, you know, mythical kind of creatures and spirits and ghosts. And I, I just kind of realized while reading this, that I, I don't really like fantasy as much, but I understand that it's necessary because without it, this would be a fucking depress, even more depressing yeah. than it already is book. And it would just be like all these murders, all this death, death, all this destruction, all this like at least the fantasy part kind of takes you out of that horrific. I mean, there's still horrific moments in the fantasy parts, but still it just kind of like balances it a bit and makes it more digestible to read.
1: I agree, and that was going to be my first question, is the magical realism that we see in the book and that we experience in the book, was it successful here, was it uh-huh. not? You're arguing that it was, I agree. Yeah. I think that one of the ways that you can stomach fantasy is by reading the fantasy as metaphor. Yes. So there's there's a portion, and, and we'll get to this, but there's a portion in the book where Bihar's sister, Bita, she becomes... A mermaid, mm-hmm. and she moves into uh, the ocean after trying her hardest to live in the house that they, you know, that they built and that they were living in, in 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 Razan. And she finds that she can't do it anymore, right? So she has to be moved to the ocean and then lives her life there. And I read that as a metaphor for immigration. Mm-hmm. I read that as a metaphor for 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 building a home for yourself and when you have to decide when you when that breaking point arrives, can I still stay here? Mm-hmm. Is this still my home? Do I still feel safe? Is this still a place that embraces me? And then when the answer is no, at what point do you then go elsewhere? So I read Beta's story as a metaphor for immigration, as mm-hmm. finding a new home, as, as trying to find safety. So fantasy can be really frustrating even for me because I'm more of a historical fiction romance non-fiction reader mm-hmm. and so for me fantasy is like always at the bottom of the list yeah for sure but in this case this was really funky because this was historical magic realism fiction yeah yeah <laughs> and, and there's a
0: lot of um mythology with these creatures and spirits and and jinns in this um within you know the history of of uh, persian Iranian culture you know so i get it i get why it's so embedded there too um, and then it made me think back to Exit West, which we did last year. Yeah. It also had some, you know, magical realism in it. And I, that I could um, get with a bit more. Cause I mean, they're doors, magical doors that you walk right. in and out of. It's not so much like I'm a fucking mermaid now, but totally putting it with the metaphor in mind does give it more, um, not to say it's more realistic, but just makes you stomach it. Yeah, and, it I ha- and I
1: hate that we have to use the word stomach, right? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't quite know what the word is. I, I don't can't, know what the I word is either. I can't articulate it yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. But, but I think that when you're thinking about fantasy, when you're reading fantasy, you have to remember that because this is magical realism, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that the magic is there to point to the realities of the human condition. Yes. So you have to be patient with it. But magical realism requires more of the reader. Mm-hmm. This is not yes, a for sure. beach read. No. At all. At all. <laughs> You'd be like crying on the you beach. You need to focus. <laughs> you do. You need to focus because at least for me, I found some some of the parts a little bit challenging and I needed to reread a paragraph. Yeah, or same. Uh, Am I grasping that right? Did I understand that right? And that's a humbling experience for, for sure. someone like me who reads, you know, 40 to 50 books a year. But- I love that because I'm being challenged and I'm being forced to experience a book in a different way. It's similar to, you know, when I curate a show, some shows, I want you to use your body a lot. I want you to Mm -hmm. walk back and forth. I want you to interact with the art. Sometimes I want you to just very lightly kind of graze through the show. I want my books to be like that too. Mm -hmm. I want my books to, to force different things from me.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I thought that was refreshing. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I, I too had to reread some things and be like, wait, 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 I'm lost now. Let me go back. And then of course, um, the translation of certain things, looking at the footnotes of different words or cities or, or mythical elements. I had to go back a lot, but, but no, it's well worth a read and really opens your eyes more to the condition and what's happening over there.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, and before we started recording, we very briefly, when we were talking about exit West and comparing it to exit West and, Alexa liking or not liking fantasy, you said something that I thought was really fascinating. You said, I'm learning what kind of books I like.
0: Yes. Yeah. Cause I, so I was a major reader growing up. I think in the episode with Darwin, I mentioned like I was the girl that went to scholastics and I had a, a a light uh, little bookmark so I could read in the dark and I'd read Nancy Drew and stuff like that. And I was very, I'd read like series of different things. Like there was a mystery series of like the cat who did this. It was all detective stuff. Um, and then I kind of stopped. And then in college, some David Sedaris and whatnot. And kind of short stories like that. But I hadn't picked reading back up in such a ferocious way mm-hmm. <laughs> as I have now with this podcast. And that we're reading so many different things. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm starting to learn what I like. And what I don't like, like how you with wine.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And and that's, as you've said to me, that's half the battle is just learning what you like and knowing how to how to pick a wine off of a menu. You're already miles above, you know, you, where you started. So it's the same yeah. thing with books. Like once you start to realize like, oh, I really like historical fiction, particularly 18th century Victorian England. You <laughs> so know, And, and that's, that's where you go, you know, that's where you go. And actually, I love that. I know you do. I love it. Oh my God, I love it. But yeah, once you figure out what works for you and what doesn't, you know how to kind of move forward. And, 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 and the thing too is that even if it's something that you don't love, I mean, in this case, I did love this book but let's say I didn't, it still serves a really important purpose. Mm-hmm. It still for is sure. a catalyst for conversation. It's still what we would use to be able to have an unenlightened an and important conversation about what's happening in Iran, for yeah, example. Definitely. Yeah. Well, I wanted to, to talk a little bit about, just before we dive into some of the the, the quotes and, and, and all of that, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Islamic revolution. I, I think that it's important that we actually have an honest discussion and first just provide a little bit of background information because that context is important for this book. And that context mm-hmm. is important for what's happening right now. Right? Yeah. So the, the protest started in September. We've been seeing it on the news. We're not seeing it on the news as much now as we should be mm-hmm. right. Like any news cycle stories become old, but what the Iranian people are asking of the international community is that we continue to post, we continue to talk and we continue to keep their stories and their movement alive. Because when you don't have a voice, you expect the voice of the international community to speak for you. And that's really all they're asking. So I wanted to just kind of give a very, very brief kind of background, but I'll start with something that I think is incredibly important. I want to talk about what this movement is not. Mm -hmm. Because so many people are equating this movement to reform mm-hmm. or as an anti-hijab movement or an anti-Islam movement. Mm-hmm. And that's not what this movement is. So this movement, <clears throat> this movement is not caused by financial stress. This movement is not asking for reform. Mm-hmm. We need to be very clear on this. They are asking for the regime to be ousted entirely. Mm -hmm. This is a revolution. Okay. So not reform, but revolution. This movement is also not about reinstating the monarchy. No. Okay. Let's be very clear. I will, at some point during this podcast episode, talk a little bit about how Iran was prospering, how it was this incredible nation that people wanted to visit. And there are all these, you know, pictures of women walking around in shorts. Yes. Some of that was during the monarchy. That is not to say that we support or that the Iranian people support going back to the monarchy. Just to be very, very clear, because in this Gen Z age (laughs) where people like to call people out for everything, I just want to be very, very clear. This is also a movement that is not just about compulsory hijab. Mm -hmm. It somewhat started off as that only because Masa Amini was arrested for supposedly wearing a hijab incorrectly or loosely. The morality police then arrested her and in their custody, she died. Yeah. Right. So it started off. Yeah, mysteriously. I'm shocked. Oh, she died on her own. Unbelievable, right? Like (laughs) unbelievable what the regime has said since that happened and completely denying it when it's so, so clear. So could die his heart
0: beat to shit too exactly,
1: exactly. <laughs> like, it was full it, it was just it, it's it's uh, beyond
0: it's, horrific. It is
1: a slap in the face to every single person and really every woman out there who has ever experienced physical abuse. Mm-hmm. And it's an insult to all of our intelligence. yeah. All of these responses have been absurd from the regime, obviously, but that is what we should expect, yeah, from them. Nothing less than that. So just to be clear, right, it's not about, it's not just about compulsory hijab. And this is also not an attack on Islam. Let's Mm -hmm. be very clear. When we talk about the regime, I tend to use the word regime Mm -hmm. because I think it's specific. Some people will say the Islamic Republic. That is fair too. I think that that's an interchangeable word that can be used. But I think that when we use it, it can create the confusion that this could be anti-Islam. So I oh, yes. I personally yes. prefer not to use it because to the people who are not as well versed about what's going on, I think that the term is, you know, it, it, it can create a little bit of confusion. Yeah. So I just stick to the regime. That's just a, an easy way of identifying I agree. the bad guys. I think it's
0: fair and, and it has that direct connotation and, and
1: works. Exactly. And And... This moment right now Iran is experiencing its largest civil rights movement since the revolution in 1979. That's so cool right. Say, so this yeah. is a direct response to what has been happening for, you know, for over 40 years. Yeah. This is this is not something that happened out of nowhere. This is not just a, a direct response to what happened to Masa Amini and to compulsory hijab and to what women have been experiencing under the regime for decades. This is pent-up anger that has been festering for those decades right and that's that includes men that yeah. includes young people that includes everybody right 60 percent of the iranian population is under the age of 30. oh my god so i think that that also adds to the strength it does of this revolution Agreed. these are young people that are that have been living their whole lives under this regime and in terms of the iranian revolution let's just define it let's just be very clear it started in 1978, we call it the 1979 revolution because that is when uh, the Shah was finally ousted. Um, but the Iranian revolution, or also known as the Islamic revolution, mm-hmm. it was really a series of events that culminated in the overthrow um, of the Pavlavi dynasty under Shah Mohammad Reza Pavlavi and the replacement of his government with the government that we know now, the regime, mm-hmm. uh, the Islamic Republic. So under the rule of Ayatollah, Ruhollah Khomeini. So what we see here is essentially one government being overthrown, or a monarchy being overthrown with the government that we know now. And now what we're seeing is that government, hopefully, yeah. being overthrown. Hopefully. Actively. Actively being I overthrown. Hope so. <laughs> so the Islamic Revolution has, of course, as we said, created a lot of pent-up anger and fear for the past 40-something years. And this book is a direct direct response to what it was like to live in Iran during that time and the repercussions mm-hmm. of what happens and how the political then becomes personal because this family is devastated. Yeah. Completely devastated. There's nothing left of the family no. by the time the book is over. No. At all. And
0: and and the family unit together throughout the book is I couldn't even call that being almost together or united or, or whatever. They're just, they're just so torn up throughout for different reasons, whether it's a death or a a jailing of a son, or it's just, there's always something missing and eating at them. And just, they're never fully united. They're not a happy family. Like it's not the perfect happy family living their normal life. It's not a normal life. It's nothing near a normal
1: life. And I think that's what the book was trying to emphasize. Yeah. That once your family is torn apart by war mm-hmm. and by revolution and by whatever it may be, right those are just examples, your family might never come back together. yeah, a happily ever after is not always possible mm. after something like after something so violent like yeah. this occurs. and I just wanted to name something here or mention something here that um our listeners knowing me will uh, <laughs> know that of course I wanted to mention, but after the 1953 Iranian coup d'état, right, where Pahlavi had aligned with the United States and the Western bloc to rule more firmly as an authoritarian monarch, he relied very heavily on the support of the United States hmm. to hold on to power, which he held for a further 26 years. Yeah, a while. So, I just wanted to note that <laughs> because we've talked about it before on this podcast, the United States mingling and 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 sticking their dirty little hands uh, in issues where it completely benefits them. And I say them because that's not a decision that I align with, obviously. No. <laughs> I'm an American citizen. However, that's not my decision, right? I kind of like to separate myself. But it's important to note this. Yeah. That sometimes our... we're not taught history because mm-hmm. we were active participants. Yeah. In not a good way. No, our hands are not clean. They oh, rarely are. <laughs> they rarely are. And that's why here in Florida we have such an issue with public education, mm-hmm. because Ron DeSantis does not want people to learn about what the United States actually has done. But that is for another it's episode. Another, day,
0: another episode. Another woke <laughs> moment. Another woke, woke, another another woke moment.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> And the last thing I want to talk about, just because I rather get all of the historical facts out of the way. No, it's good it's before good. we dive into, especially Sorab, because that's really where I want to like chat for mm-hmm. a while. But I want to talk about the summer of 1988 uh, in Iran, which right was here. the when the Iranian regime executed anywhere between 5,000 to 30,000 political prisoners. and insane! I can't. There, it's known as the mass executions of 1988, and one of our protagonists in the book, Sorab, the brother of uh, Bahar. He is executed yeah, and he's executed because he is found in his home with, uh, books of poetry, of politics, of history. And that, you know, obviously it breaks my heart for many, many reasons yeah. as a person who owns exactly that kind of thing. Jesus Christ. <laughs> but the fact that you'd be punished for expanding your mind for wanting to know and understand more ideas. I mean, it's, um, it's something that you should never, ever forget has happened because it will happen again and it can happen anywhere. Yeah. It can happen absolutely anywhere. And because the number of the prisoners you know, who were executed was so high in 1988, the prisoners were loaded up into trucks and they were hanged in, hanged in groups of six from cranes in half hour intervals. Oh my God. So they had a, a, a practicality to it, which is sick. Here's your time slot. Like, what exactly. the fuck is that? exactly and many prisoners died under you know torture some even became deaf paralyzed and afflicted you know with chronic diseases yeah. and of course as is happening right now in Iran today young female prisoners were raped yeah. and assaulted so what i want the point i want to make is that if you think for one second that the regime is not capable of the exact same thing today think again mm-hmm. and that's why social media is so important and that's why keeping the story alive is so important because when we make people famous, when we talk about this, the regime has no choice but to back down. Absolutely. So we have to keep this alive.
0: No, when we have different tools today than we did back then. Like you're saying, the social media and the being able to multiply the message throughout so many different channels. So it's it's a perfect storm for hopefully an overthrowing. Yeah. More progress. A full revolution. revolution.
1: For a democratic state. Yeah. Yeah. And- the the burial sites for many of these victims remains unknown yeah and that's the case for Sohrab, in the book they have no idea where he was buried and they never find him and he lives in this limbo forever and the limbo that he lives in is is quite literal this is a, a book of fantasy they are dead but they're experiencing the same things that the living are experiencing so this limbo i take it as a metaphor for the people who are still alive that don't know what happened to their families Yeah, that that connection is never gone because when something is unknown, it becomes that much harder to accept, understand, put behind you and move forward. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and
0: his story in particular was so kind of heartbreaking. I mean, they're both the, the two, all the children, really, all the stories are heartbreaking, but with his, they had tried so hard in the village that they lived in to keep him from being recruited, keep him from being known and seen. And then they just barge in, take him, take almost all of the books, everything. And then he's in jail for a while in prison. You don't really know what's happening. That's a madhouse in and of itself. And they, they get to see him, I think once
1: before he
0: gets executed. And the only reason they knew he was executed is because they called his father down to pick up his belongings. They didn't even tell him like, why he was being called down. He's like, oh, maybe I'll see him. Maybe I'll have a moment. No, they were just handing out boxes of, here's your son's shit. Yeah. He's dead.
1: And there's also the enlightenment yeah. of the mother. Yes, that's right. So on a practical sense, the family finds out because they pick up his things, right, as Alexa described. But the title of the book, The Enlightenment of the Green Gage Tree, refers to a very specific moment where the mother who was on on this tree... At the moment that Sorab is, is executed, she feels it. Yeah. And she calls it, and they call it the enlightenment in the book. And there was something really special I thought in the book that related to kind of like that maternal instinct. I mean, mm-hmm. the fact that the title refers to that specific moment, but the father for me is really more of the kind of protagonist of the story. Mm-hmm. The father, you see and experience and get to know throughout the entirety of the book. Whereas the mom at one point, separates herself and can't handle no. the reality of her life and you see her leave and for a while for a good like 50 pages yeah. you hear nothing, nothing of her and you don't really know what's going on and then you you do get updates but but I just thought it was really interesting that, that, the, that the book itself is titled after that moment that maternal instinct moment where suddenly she knew for a fact that her son had been killed and I wanted to talk a little bit about how this book discusses grief and loss but not just the grief of losing a loved one, but the grief of losing a life
0: and a Mm -hmm. lifestyle
1: and the things that you consider to be a normal part of your everyday life. And there was a really great quote on page 45 that says, mom so detested life after the revolution that she was afraid to look at the past, fearing that even the smallest object would remind her of past happiness. Mm. And that to me was so powerful. Because sometimes we are afraid to look back to when we have been happier maybe than we are now. And we're afraid that we're either never going to feel that again or or that we'll never get that feeling back, that specific nostalgia. And that that just to me was really powerful because I can only imagine in that sort of situation when your entire life quite literally falls apart and you have to build a new home elsewhere in the hopes that you're safer, you really have no choice, but to bury it.
0: Yeah. No, you, you have to, because the future is uncertain, especially in that regime in that time that they were living, they tried to leave into like the smallest, most remote village possible without paved roads and streets and electricity and all that, you know, they tried to remove themselves so far to, to just maybe get, get a you know, a nugget of what their their past life was. And still it just wasn't it just wasn't enough. And and the horrible things kept happening. And and I can't even imagine, you know, the uncertainty and just kind of it's like a survival method. Like you can't really enjoy your life. You're just trying to survive your life.
1: And even in on the most peaceful days, yeah. Right. They started to feel that there was something changing because suddenly there were people who were from out of the town mm-hmm. coming in and making their business known and searching and seeing how people were acting and searching their homes. And they realized at that moment that you can't actually escape a revolution, no. that you can, you can move to a rural place and you can move elsewhere and you can try and escape it. But if you're still within that jurisdiction, no one is really safe. No. And I think that that was also really, really emphasized in the book because they, they try multiple times to sort of live the most normal yeah. life that they can. They rebuild mm-hmm. their home after a horrible winter, uh, where it, it rains, right? Black snow, black snow, where it rains for like however many months and crazy and they have to rebuild their house. And their house was the only one that survived because it was up on a hill. And instead of leaving, instead of taking anything as a sign, it was constantly about rebuilding and staying and trying to claim that land. And I can understand the instinct. You've been kicked out of where you were from, right? They were living in the capital, and Then you go somewhere else and the thought of having to do that again is unfathomable. Yeah. No, it's exhausting.
0: And it's just, you know, you want to stay with your roots. You want to stay in a place that you call home. And it's like you can never really call a place home per se because you just keep searching for the normalcy, the the, what you had, and you can't really get to it. And, And you could see that time and time again with them trying to, okay, this horrible thing happened to us. All right, now we're going to go back and, you know, prune the bushes and do like a a normal day. We'll give it a try. We'll try again.
1: And that's the hope and and the strength of the human spirit. Yeah. We're resilient. We're incredibly resilient. If there's one thing about human beings, it's that. Mm -hmm. And what I find fascinating is that when you're put in this really horrible situation or a difficult situation, I should say, people always say like, oh, wow, you're, you know, you're so strong. But in those situations, it's the only option that you have. Yeah. So it's commendable, but I've always found it. I've, I've always found that to be an interesting um, interpretation. Yeah. Because when it's the only option that you have, how commendable is it? What else are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've always like, I've always like reflected on like people say that to me all the time about my brother's transplant. Oh, you're, you're, you're so amazing. You, you did this. You're, you're so brave. And I'm like, it's quite literally the only option I had. Like, how commendable is it? Like, what do you talk? you know what I mean? It's yeah, just, it's yeah, yeah, funny. Okay, like, yeah. yeah, I appreciate the kind words. And I think a part of me agrees with you, but that reminded me a lot of this like, book and I how the family was living. Like, what else, <laughs> th- what the fuck else were they supposed to do? And, and it breaks your heart when you think about that lack, of, you know, the, the lack of options that were presented to them. But I thought it was really interesting that the book also references religion a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily poking directly at the Islamic no, regime. at all. But it does talk about the sort of liberation that you can experience when you leave religion behind, in a sense. Because there's a moment where Bahar is talking about death. And she says, there are a lot of good things about dying. That's an interesting yeah, start, yeah right? right? <laughs> you are suddenly light and free and no longer afraid of death, sickness, judgment, or religion. You don't have to grow up faded to replicate the lives of others. You are no longer forced to study nor tested on the principles of religion or what invalidates prayer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I thought that was very pointed. Yes. And everyone who listens to this podcast knows exactly <laughs> how I feel about organized religion. But I thought it was really fascinating that those are the things that she felt she was free of after dying. The obvious things, sickness, Sickness, death. Well, you're already there. You're already there. Yeah, yeah, you're not. But the fact that she mentions religion twice and what invalidates prayer, that that is what she looked forward to leaving behind. I I read that as a sort of metaphor too. Yeah. For the pressures that came with living under the islamic regime yeah exactly
0: it's it's so so harsh and they would get you know stopped and jailed and and for for anything that that violated um that religion so i could only imagine that like yeah like you said sickness this that those are things to look forward to theoretically in death but the fact that i didn't have to to memorize something that invalidated prayer or or that's just so specific to that it just makes you understand how challenging and difficult that regime is and of the pressures it put on the people
1: yeah i thought that was really profound and yeah. I, en- I enjoyed that and another element of that or how else how else the family rebelled mm-hmm. was through books and that's the next major topic that For i want to sure. discuss books because are
0: referenced all the time
1: books were their lifeblood i mean this is a time when you know there was obviously no internet uh-huh. books were how you escaped mm-hmm. they're still how you escaped Books were a source of knowledge, a source of escape, a source of happiness, of joy, of feeling like you could be something else. Yeah. They're, they're, books are inherently hopeful. If you read, chances are you're a hopeful person. Yeah. And what I thought was really interesting is as soon as they start to like take all the books away, they start to confiscate all of the tapes and literature and everything from their home, The first thing that the father says is that they needed to begin, they need to begin writing. Yes. And it was like, Bahar described. She's like, we looked at him as if he lost his mind, but out of respect, we took the notebooks and and stared at him as he explained, write, write all you remember, the characters and novels, their loves, wars, peace, their adventures, hates, betrayals, write down anything you remember from the books. That's how you preserve history. Yeah. I love that part. I loved that. I really enjoyed that because I think it it relates to what we're experiencing right now. Yeah, all the book bans. The book bans and the thought that you can sort of manipulate history and that you can teach yes. it in this, in this different way that is completely inaccurate. We're living in a time where people access their own information. Mm-hmm. I think part of the reason why the midterms did not go as poorly as we all expected them to is because there are a lot of young people who are entirely aware of what has actually happened because they have unlimited resources available to them, and they don't appreciate being lied to. Mm -hmm. This is the generation that grew up doing active shooter drills. This is the generation that never in a million years thought that abortion would be taken away from them. And I can understand this reaction described in the book because of what's happening right now, that you have to preserve history. You have to preserve the proper stories. You have to keep those stories alive in order to heal. To heal, rebuild, continue the
0: traditions, the stories, the the free thought.
1: It's as simple as that. Yeah.
0: Because otherwise, what else are people gonna read? How are they gonna expand their minds and become, you know, enlightened in those ways if they don't know?
1: And the way that they describe books in 169, books had always been the first and final refuge in our house. I found it almost sad because I know that's not true here anymore. Yeah. I think that we would be a happier, better, more fulfilled, more positive society if that were still the case. If books were still the place that people wanted to dive into, yeah. to escape, to learn. It's, it's sad for me as a reader to read this and think about you know the Islamic Revolution and to think that this is how they did it. Because I, I can't imagine books being taken away from no. from me. Books
0: expand your mind they give you you know different cultures different perceptions they you know open new worlds to you it's just all about you know liberation and and finding more truths out there in the world and and to have them taken away and not ugh. and then there's the scene where they burn all the the books
1: yes that
0: was painful that too. was
1: oh my god and and then on page 198 every book he touched was more than a book it was a memory his entire mm-hmm. destiny it was longing so that that scene that you're describing, was it was almost like they were killing him. Yes. I read it as a metaphor of them killing yet another part of who he was. His At this point, his daughter has already died, right? Bahar, yeah. as we mentioned at the beginning, she's a ghost. She dies when they're still in Tehran. The house burns down and she dies in the fire. And then you have Sohrab, who gets executed mm-hmm. during the mass executions of 88. And we don't know much about what happens to him. No. And then the mother at one point Leaves. Yeah. Straight up.
0: Just cannot starts bear, walking in the forest. And, cannot
1: bear the existence and straight up walks through the forest like leaves. in a
0: trance almost. Yes. Like, like she After can't. After the cope. enlightenment. Yeah. Like she can't cope with life anymore and she's just entranced and walking, not even realizing she's walking. Yeah. It's like a like, a flight method of, like, fight or flight. She's like, I need to just go. I need to just go. I can't be here anymore. Like, that this is my me, life.
1: That reminded me a lot of the mom leaving in Where the Crawdads Sing. Yes. Yes. That very was similar. something else that I was also, like, reminiscing about. And I was like, how does a mother just leave her children? Absolutely. Well, when it's, when it's your own survival, your own brain will do whatever it needs to do to convince you to leave a dangerous situation. Yeah, it's primal. But so thought it's that was even, interesting. Yeah. No, it's she so just similar. Yeah. And then you have Bita, the other daughter, who... Can no longer live in her own body and has to go and live in the ocean. Mm-hmm. And there's a horrible sexual assault, yeah.
0: almost rape scene. Trigger warning if you read this book. Yeah, trigger it's warning this. really bad.
1: It's, to me, that was the hardest part of I, the yeah. book.
0: I had to skip some lines because I'm like, I can't dive into this detail. Yeah. I'm, I'm like crying for her.
1: Yeah, there's a scene where Beta, being a mermaid, she comes up to the surface and and into the beach to try and and see her family um Mm -hmm. because they would come and visit her every once in a while and she comes to try and see her family and she gets caught by all of these people who live in the nearby village like fishermen and and stuff and they attack her they assault her they attempt to rape her i mean one of them pulls his pants down and it's just it's written in a really violent and horrific way Mm -hmm. and to me that was not only a metaphor for once you have found a certain type of safety right through migration you're living in a new place that doesn't mean that you're safe from everything no. i read it as that but i also now that i'm reflecting on it a little bit i also see it as a metaphor for all of the women who were assaulted yeah. and raped in, in 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 prisons yeah you know during the revolution and and right now
0: yeah absolutely we we
1: recently read a, an article where there are people claiming and and i wholeheartedly believe this because i believe the iranian people on the ground that they're before they're executing these women, they are raping them so that they won't quote unquote make it to heaven.
0: <sighs> That's so horrible.
1: And I, that scene where Beta gets assaulted, yeah. to me, was a direct reference to the violence, the, the sheer violence against women that has been created and lawfully and enforced.
0: In, yeah, and accepted. And
1: accepted by this regime. And that brings you to this idea of of the morality police, mm-hmm. right? It's the morality police that that arrested massa amini and that accused her of not wearing her hijab properly and just the thought of a morality police at all yeah exactly. is shocking in a state that repeatedly executes and rapes people you have the audacity <laughs> you know it's a, it just goes to show that it's always about power yeah it's never about morality it's never about what's right and what's wrong it is 100% about who is in power and how that power can be maintained
0: absolutely and i i found that um in the in the beta situation too um very reflective of i'm sure how society is right now how you know, some people standing by watching things unfold who think it's unjust who think it's unfair men but who feel like they can't support or use their voice because their community and the people that they know are doing these horrific things and they don't want to be ousted themselves and then the women in that scene the the mothers the wives the grandmothers who heard about what happened to Beta and were pissed and losing their shit about it had to not say a word because they don't want to be turned on by their husbands. They had to stomach it. it. Stomach it and be like, fine with it. Not mention it. Even though they know the horrific things that these men have done out there.
1: And there's nothing more difficult for a woman to know that a man in your life has... Assaulted, or you know, physically abused another woman. It's like, as women, because we experience violence almost on a daily basis, even if it's in the form of Mm catcalling, I can't fathom that, right? And so it was interesting that, like, the author took the time to write about that. It wasn't just, oh, the fishermen all went home. Next chapter, it was, and the women felt a certain way, but they had to stomach it and they had to be silent and because they, they couldn't ask, afford yeah.
0: to speak they had to ask how was your day and see if it was brought up but they couldn't yeah they couldn't afford to i mean they don't
1: right. have the power to it's unsafe yeah very unsafe and, yeah. and 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 i it brought me obviously a lot a lot of sadness and i was incredibly uncomfortable when i was reading it but all i could think of was the dad yeah how he's lost every single person and I have this, like, soft spot for him because, it, to me, the book is about the dad. It really oh, is. Oh, totally. He's it's the, the hard
0: character. Yeah, he's the, the only character of the family besides for her that's there throughout. And she's only there throughout because she's a ghost. She could right. legit pop up in anyone's, you know, life, the mom, this, right. whenever.
1: That was an easy function. Yes. I yes, think yes, yes. for, you know, for the author. And for me, there was just, it was just so obvious that he was who we should be focusing on from the very beginning. And there's a moment that she describes her dad kind of thinking about what has happened. And it made me think how many of us have had this same thought. It's a dad dad still wanted to know how the Iranian culture and civilization with all its grandeur and creativity, with its belief in good thoughts, good words, and good deeds, had collapsed and reached such depths. Mm-hmm. And I know I can't compare. I'm not no, trying to make no, no, it sound no. like it's like it's equivalent. I'm not. I'm absolutely not. I'm aware that here I have certain fundamental rights that are not granted to women in Iran. I, I, I would never make the comparison. But I do think it's important to apply that same lesson here or that same perspective here. Yeah. I think about that when I think about the overturning of Roe. I will always think of it that way. You know, I know that in Iran, you can't even compare, but here we're losing fundamental rights. And I think all the time, how could we have reached such depths? And I think that that quote and just that message, it echoing throughout the book is meant for you the reader to reflect on it mm-hmm. as you as you move through your life and as you live in different places and as you experience different cultures i think it's important for all of us to always keep that in mind how does something fall from its pedestal how does something fall from grace and nine times out of ten, you'll find the answer in a history book. Yeah. No, I was going to say, it, it serves
0: almost as like a like a cautionary tale because this has happened time and time again throughout history to all these right. grand civilizations that just crumble. And it, it shows that it can happen again and again and again. We don't really learn all that much from our history.
1: Yeah. And, and, and there's a sense of regret mm-hmm. that he feels and that he experiences at the end of the book. And he concluded that if he hadn't given up and ran away, you know, to Razan when the revolution had started um, and when Bahar was killed, but instead maybe he had tried to, you know, start and guide even like a very small movement with like-minded people, that at least he would have felt better about himself later on. And that's that's the message, mm-hmm. I think. That's always the message: is reflect on whether or not you've been complacent, if you've been silent, or if you've been active and you've been doing your best to support. And that should be. For everything, yeah. If you were, if you've been silent since September about what's happening in Iran, why? Why? Because you can only help, yes, by posting. You can only help by speaking out. But when you're silent, you're complicit. Why? If you haven't uh, posted or talked about the overturning of Roe, why? If you haven't voted, why? These are these are things that you'll come to regret when it's your rights, yeah, on the table. Exactly. When it's your home that's burned. And destroyed, and your family killed, right? Like these are these. I'm not speaking in hyperbole. This is quite literally how it goes.
0: Yeah, this is happening now, right now, right now, as we sit here recording this. That crazy shit Mm -hmm. is happening.
1: It's happening, and Iran is experiencing its first revolution since '79. Yeah, and ousting that very same government. And it's so important to constantly reflect on what that means. And and obviously I just I want to dedicate this episode to all of the people of Iran who are fighting, who are risking their lives, funneling information out from Iran to the rest of us, who are posting, who are calling, who are finding ways to share and spread their message. I dedicate this to all of the women who have I mean so courageously removed their hijab yeah. and walked the streets and shown their hair, something they haven't been able to do since '83, I believe. It's crazy. And so this is this episode is dedicated to them because we want people to reflect on what's happening. We want to keep this movement alive. This is nowhere near over. I'm happy to do a follow up episode later if things progress. Mm-hmm. We have another amazing book by another <laughs> Iranian yeah, uh, author. You know, we, we can keep this conversation going if there's interest. Uh, and, and either way, we'll definitely keep it alive on social media. So we, we just want to hear people's thoughts. We want people to get involved. If if you guys have questions, if you have suggestions for resources, things like mm-hmm. that, we'll also share some resources yeah. on our Instagram page. Um, if you're interested in learning more about what's happening in Iran, but let's just not be the people who think, man, maybe if I hadn't run away and I would have worked with some like-minded people to try and make a change, maybe I would feel better about myself now. I never want to think that. I no. never want to feel that way. Never. Ever no and on that note oh cheers cheers to them this is delicious i've been talking too much and that's how i, I can know. tell because my wine glass <laughs> is still full and yours is, mine like, is like half empty. you're like you're like you're done basically <laughs> you need a refill and i'm just here chatting and oh uh, no
0: and then we're here um
1: eating some hamong. yeah thank <laughs> we're you we're hungry thank you pablo thank you to our friend pablo who gifted us this delicious just- cured hamong.
0: <laughs> Oh my god. Oh my god. It is so delicious and just what I needed from this long day and 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 just long and important talk because it really I I'm so glad we're doing this because I I too was one that didn't really know what was going on other than snippets that I saw on social media and when I did the deep dive in I was like holy shit this is horrible. Like these are atrocities and I just you know you think in this day and age that we're so technologically advanced and we're so ab- above, you know, these barbaric things that happened way back when no, they're still happening. It's happening day in and day out in, yep. in countries like this. And you just you just get a sense of like, what the fuck? And and I just
1: want to say also, we're not far removed. No. Because all the Iranian people that I know, and I'm blessed to have quite a few Iranian friends, all of them are still connected to people who are still in Iran or who recently left, or, I mean, they are so connected that they themselves are experiencing the outrage and the consequences of everything that's happening in Iran right now. And they are so active, so vocal. So I also dedicate this to them Yeah, because they have forced all of us to have this incredibly important conversation. And If you have an Iranian friend, give them a hug, Mm -hmm. tell them, tell them that you're here for them, that you will post that you will support because we all, we're all in this together now. Yeah, absolutely. Now,
0: and, and even, you know, all these horrible things happening, there's so many restrictions that you don't even think of over there, including wine, including wine making, wine drinking, just normal things like me coming home after a long day, making a, a beautiful meal, not me, my husband, you know. Making the beautiful but yeah, You're not going to be making any beautiful I love it. I'll make you a good charcuterie board. <laughs> but, you know, Sean cooking. And then I'm like, oh, I'm going to grab this serre. I'm going to grab this, you know, Bordeaux. No, can't do any of that shit there.
1: Life's simple pleasures, <laughs> Simple
0: man. pleasures that just keep you happy mm-hmm. on a daily basis. No, morality police will come and fucking scoop you out of there, yeah. so... But ironically, the history of wine goes back as almost the, as far as the civilizations of Iran. The first wines were ever were fermented. Um, it took place in the regions near the, now please forgive me if I mispronounce this. I am not into geography like that. The Caucasus and Zagros Mountains in the northern and western regions of Iran. There's evidence of wine being made in Iran over seven Thousand years ago. So, this is like supposedly like the birthplace of wine, really, like one of the main initial spots. And they can't even drink wine right now. It's that's
1: that's such when you told me that I couldn't believe it. It's I had insane. never thought of Iran as a wine region. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think a lot of people have. No, and just politics. That that's what changes an, an Every entire day. industry, an entire hi- a rich history.
0: Yes, and and with such a long history, they they even have like mythology around wine. So it it just shows you how how old it is. And one story which I thought was interesting was like involves a heartbroken girl who was rejected by the king, and and she became suicidal and wanted to end her life. So she ate like rotten grapes. Yeah, and she survived, obviously, because they're just riding great. It's not like not much is going to happen. Yeah. I, I know it's back in the day. <laughs> You're going to be okay, so girl. <laughs> you ain't got no Pepto-Bismol and stuff. But, like, so she survived, obviously, got a little a little drunk, <clears throat> a little buzz on. And then, you know, told the king, told everyone about what happened. And that's how supposedly the wine scene was born.
1: Oh, that's so interesting. Uh, I love mythology. This is, uh, I wonder if this has uh, any relationship whatsoever to Adam and Eve and the apple, huh? Right, All right. All of these stories these usually originate in the same way and from yeah. the same place. And you look at the epo- Epic of Gilgamesh, for example, you have a Jesus figure. Yeah. So it's just interesting that you mentioned that because... The Western stories Mm -hmm. that we know sound so much like
0: these myths that you're describing. Exactly. No, and it all stems from like similar places. I just, I love it. And then, you know, we fast forward to the present. They're obviously suffering this crazy regime under the Supreme Leader where wine and alcoholic beverages are forbidden and, and punishable by Islamic rules. And it's estimated, this is like the thing that really kills me. That until the revolution of 1979, as many as 300 wineries operated within Iran's borders. 300 wineries shut down, closed, ceased to exist. So, I mean, you're you're thinking, you know, wow, that's horrible because the wine. But then also as like a practical standpoint, like these are jobs being lost. These are families' livelihoods being taken away. This is like a whole industry from mm-hmm. the farmer to the winemaker to the, you know, the supplier distributor the like every, the consumer, the restaurant, like this whole facet of an industry wiped away because you're not allowed to drink. Wine. That's,
1: so, that's so interesting that you mentioned it like that because yeah, I mean, people always think of the kind of practical first, Oh, you know, no access to wine, but yeah, these are, these are families, these yeah. are jobs. I mean, it's, i'm just still so fascinated by by the idea that politics would have the power to take away something like this
0: yeah an industry that's full-blown working for many many years clearly seven seven thousand years
1: not fans of uh, dionysus i can no uh, i can fathom <laughs> absolutely interesting. not interesting
0: and i mean today the industry is mostly forbidden except for a few non-muslim operations And there's some at-home winemakers, and while drinking wine is still illegal, some reports, you know, people getting information out into the world say that um, they still drink a modest amount of wine per year. Um, And then I found this article written by an Iranian who lives over there, an amateur winemaker who was born after the the 1979 revolution, but was raised during the um, eight-year Iraq-Iran war, and he started to ferment crushed grapes in 2012. He likes personally creating a red and a white each year, and he buys grapes from a local market. And um, there was one year where, like, all of the elements were right. The grapes were right. His his fermenting was right. Everything he did, like, it produced a superb wine. For what he knows, because he also never really went to restaurants and bought wine. Never, right. you know, had those experiences we take for granted. And, you know, they were delicious. And a friend was getting married and requested some bottles at their wedding. And drinking in weddings is not a common thing over there. The winemaker even placed the bottles in a hidden spot in his car just in case he got pulled over by the morality police. Wow. Yeah. These aren't open bottles. These are sealed contain. But, yeah, just the fact that, like, oh, shit, I'm taking this bottle with me to a, a special occasion. I might get pulled over and arrested for having this. Right.
1: Not for drinking it. Not, not for drinking for being it. Drunk.
0: Not for being drunk. But just for, for possessing this product. It, it It's just like astonishing. It's like crazy. So they were having a blast. Everyone's having a good time. Around midnight, a couple tipsy smokers went outside to have a few smokes. You know, they can't hold their liquor very well because they don't drink much. Mm-hmm. And some morality police walked by saw the, the commotion, went over, started questioning them about drinking and partying. They did breathalyzer tests. They called the police station for backup. Backup came, breathalyzed tests on everyone, and everyone who had drinks were taken into custody. And the judge issued a hundred lashes for each and every person and a cash fine. This is like lashes, like what biblical shit. What
1: century are
0: we living in? <laughs> well, it, it took me back to like, wait, what? Like, wait, did I read that right? I'm like, and this is a recent article. It's not like...
1: What fucking century are we living bro, in? Oh, lashes.
0: I, I just, when I read that, I had to reread it because I'm like, no, that can't be right. And I'm like, oh, no, it's right. Oh,
1: okay. Yeah.
0: Okay, and then I want to talk about this wine producer. Obviously, I wasn't able to find... Iranian wine, because right. uh, they right. barely <laughs> have <laughs> any, and, and whoever's making it, you know, in their house isn't going to import it to the United States. Um, but luckily, I was able to find a family that came over in the 90s and started making wine. So based um, in Willamette Valley in Oregon, the Mesara Winery and Montazi Vineyard was started in 1997 by the Montazi family, originally from Iran. Um, So this bottle in particular is Three Degrees, is the name of this bottle. It's handcrafted by the three Mamtazi sisters. And it's, it's cute because it's taking their differing personalities and combining with elegance, finesse, and balance to reflect the dynamic characteristics of their vineyard from which the fruit is sourced. What I thought was really interesting when I was reading up on the family was when they came in 1997, they bought, you know, a ton of acreage in the hopes of making wine. And when they were prepping the land to do so, they didn't use any chemicals, any chemicals at all. So they practice crazy sustainability. They don't want to poison the land. So they, they cleared up everything, all the overgrow and and everything to prep it for the vineyards naturally. So that in and of itself, it's, it's commendable. Because they didn't want to poison the land. They didn't want their fruit to come out of, of that, you know. They practice low-impact, holistic farming methods, and they're Demeter-certified biodynamic vineyard. Demeter is major. It's it's global. You have to apply. You have to pay. You have to do certain things throughout the vineyards that are all sustainable. Um, so they're serious. They're really serious about it. And then they also carry this philosophy into the cellar with biodynamic wine practices, native yeast um no filtering and fining, just different things like that and in their vineyard is in the McMinneyville APA and they make Riesling Pinot Gris and Pinot Noir we are tasting the Pinot Noir today which
1: is your fave I love Pinot Noir I'm so basic (laughs) I love Pinot Noir Pinot Noir
0: Um, and then another interesting thing that I thought um, when I was researching them is they believe in holding on to their vintages until the wine is fully evolved rather than releasing chronologically so if I don't know if the 2017 for example is ready before the I don't, the 2015 they'll release the 2017 instead and that's so interesting right and they think each vintage is unique and should mature on its own timeline so I'm like
1: huh just or, like we should.
0: Yes, exactly. I'm just like, huh? I like that.
1: I like that. Listening like
0: to that. to your own voice there with the grapes. I dig it. Um, so this wine in particular is from 2018. The conditions were a warm summer with some very hot weeks, but as the summer waned into August, smoke filtered in from the forest fires around the Willamette Valley, and this gave them kind of a break from both uh, the heat. As well as the harsh sun rays that would typically cause UV burn on the on the vines. Um, this was made with native yeast, like I said, they're biodynamic. It was aged nine months and hundred percent neutral French oak, so you get some um, hints from the oak, but not not that much because it's neutral. And the alcohol is thirteen point nine percent, which is like a little high. Mm-hmm. It's a little high there. It is. Um, so let's let's dive in. Let's let's start. Let's start
1: tasting. I have to say it's it's definitely opened up a little bit, yeah, because we 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 crank this thing mm-hmm. open, you know, when we first start recording. So it's there's definitely a little, a little bit of a shift there, which is which is nice. I always that's I think that that's like what I love most about wine is that it kind of like develops. It becomes a different experience. just just having it open, just having it in your glass for a little bit. Yeah. It's like so different. It
0: completely evolves from like when you pour a glass and you drink it out straight straight away. And then you let it sit and, and mellow and aerate. It's like it evolves completely. Like, yeah. like us. Like us. We evolved completely. <laughs> like us. Like us. Um, so I would say this wine is kind of pale. It's kind of like a ruby but with hints of purple, mm-hmm. a little purple in it. Um, let's uh let's smell it a bit. Mm, it smells lovely. I get I get berries. Yeah, yeah, definitely like berry. Mm-hmm. Um like uh blackberry, yeah, definitely, yeah, Dark fruit. berry fruit, mm-hmm. red fruit, delicious,
1: but it's funny because when we first opened it and you first poured it, the first thing I smelled was the oak, yeah, and I don't get that now, no, it's been an hour, yeah, and I don't get the oak anymore now I just get the fruit,
0: no, it's completely different now. it's just like super strong fruit forward, like lots of red, like like not super fresh. But not baked, like like just ripe and nice yeah. and delicious that you could just like get into. Um, and then let's taste. Yeah, more like juicy berries, juicy fruit, yeah. nice like tart cherry, um, and some like pomegranate, um, some like red plum. Like it's just like nice and delicious, like yeah. raspberries.
1: Yeah, it's very, very flavorful. I, as as a fan of Pinot Noir, I, I really like this mm-hmm. because what I like about Pinot Noir usually is that it's the the, the red fruit, mm-hmm. the kind of berry flavor. So if that's the kind of wine that you like, I think this is a, a pretty good pick. For sure. And it's still like, even when you,
0: um, when you sip on it, it's very berry, but then there's like a hint of like spiciness, like pepper, yeah. little pepper. At the end. At the end. Yeah. A little
1: bit though. I'm not little. normally a fan of that. And actually I, I like it here. It balances out that fruit mm-hmm. flavor really nicely
0: know it's some nice like pepper it has really nice tannins like they're not super mouth drying and grippy but they're like nice structure to it yeah and it like has a nice um finish mm-hmm. like it lingers for a while on your palate yeah there's almost like um i mean there's pepper there's almost, like a i don't want to say like a salinity to it but it's just like it's just nice there's a lot going on here
1: yeah and i think to me, Pinot Noir is just generally like a very safe wine. If you're going mm-hmm. to a dinner party and you want to bring something along and you want to bring a red, like to me, a Pinot is usually like a pretty safe choice. And this one is that, but also it's it's a it's a little funky. What is it that's making it funky?
0: I think it's just the a, a combination between the terroir, the climate, and probably the fact that it's all natural winemaking. You know they they use natural biodynamic winemaking processes in the vineyards and in the winery so i think it's a combination of all that the
1: when region. i when i think oregon i mean i do kind of think pinot noir but like lately washington state oregon all of that i think more riesling yeah, yeah, they like do that's make a been lot my thing lately. Too. So like, I'm like I'm like, oh, this feels like I'm going back to something. OG because yeah, I've yeah. just been doing like pure Riesling from that area. Yes. Yeah. but Now you have
0: another a Pinot Noir to grab onto. Yeah. And it's and it's cute. And I, and you look at the bottle and it has kind of like a it's the, the label's pretty basic, I would yes. say. There's not yes. like you wouldn't be like, oh my god, this label tells me this is quality, like you know, some people. Three is my favorite
1: number, though. Three is so, a good number, yeah. so
0: it's three, and then it has the story in the back, and it's cute because it has the three sisters' like signatures here. Yeah, I didn't I realize that. it's it. so personal. Yeah, and it's personal, and it's nice. Like it's kind of nice comparing it to to the story of like the family who kind of stuck it out in yeah. a sense, staying in their country, in their home, not their hometown, but like within their borders, trying to make it. Work and then you see another family that kind of got out at some point. I mean, it was nineteen ninety seven, so they. Yeah. I'm sure they saw some atrocities too. Of course, of course, of but course. being able to at some point migrate and having a completely different life and circumstance, and 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 perhaps finding that happiness that they once had, and and you know making a better future out of it. So it's just interesting to see like the the different. Paths. It's, going such to yeah, it's such completely. a contrast. Yeah, I mean, that's also
1: why. I mean, this wine is such a perfect pairing for for so many reasons. But I think that's like the top one for me. That it just plays kind of like as a juxtaposition to the book, to the experience of what you see in the family in the book. And and I just again, I mean, we've like preached this so many times. But like people who come to this country and like bring their best, you know, that's what the United States is really all about. And I love that this is a family that came here. And brought their culture, brought their heritage, and made this incredible wine. I mean, there's there's nothing to me more heartwarming than yeah,
0: that. Yeah, of course. It's it's yeah, leaving everything you know behind yeah. to make a better life for you and your family. That's all we could yeah. all ever hope for. Right. So right. and you could get this online. So I found it fortunately on wine.com and with a the quickness, they sent it to us in two days. I did not even do fancy so fast. shipping or anything. And um it is twenty-five ninety-nine. So it, it's a really good value Pinot Noir. I think it's it's well priced, it it's delicious, and the story is incredible and I think it's a really great value for yeah. for the wine and all that.
1: I agree, and as a Pinot Queen, I approve.
0: Yeah, you approve this message. I
1: approve
0: this message. <laughs> Oh, amazing. It, it's been such a great episode. I'm so glad that we're able to speak on this subject and enlighten people. I, I too have learned more throughout this episode, researching and talking to you about it and diving in more. So I'm glad we were able to bring up this important conversation and this topic and, and create more conversation and dialogue around it to, to bring more
1: awareness. And let's keep it going. Yes.
0: You know, reach out to us,
1: talk to us about this episode. Let's keep the conversation going so that we can do everything we can. To support the the people of iran
0: definitely so as always um rate us give us lots of stars great reviews follow us subscribe to the podcast if you don't already if you if you stumbled upon us and you liked us do all those things you could follow us on instagram at pouring over pages podcast um go to our shop and get some merch we have cute merch i actually have these cute little wine tumblers now on there so
1: I want one. Grab all
0: the merch. And um as always, thank you so much for for reading with us, sipping with us, and cheers. Cheers.